It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. You know, last night, Governor Roy Cooper's administration gave to the North Carolina, I think it's the Restaurant and Lodging Association, gave them an advance copy of the guidelines to reopening. Within the hour, his administration then apparently handed it off to the media, and then about an hour after that, state lawmakers got a copy, which I think is, that's the constitutionally prescribed uh, chain of... uh, of custody, right? Like you, the governor crafts the stuff in secret, then gives it to the industry that it's going to apply to, then the industry and the administration. I don't really know who leaked it out to the media. And then, uh, then it goes to the lawmakers and then the lawmakers can finally know what the governor intends to do. So lawmakers can help inform the public as well of the governor's plans. I think that's, it's in the constitution, state constitution, obviously. It's not the federal constitution. Uh, you can see, the document, the uh, five pages of guidelines uh, and requirements, it's posted up at the Patreon page under Pete's prep for this week. So uh, it's actually one of the benefits of becoming a patron to the program. At the very bottom level, you actually get access to all of my prep sheet notes, all of the stories that I'm reading um, and all of that. Uh, folks, uh, for example, like Beth and Al and Janet and NC38, that's the name they gave me, and uh, Dan, and Karen, and Robbie, Tavis, Lou, and Eric. I appreciate the support. Couldn't do the show without you. Uh, I'm going to go over the highlights of the new guidance for the restaurants. Um, Not all of it. Like I said, it's five pages, and I'm not going to just read to you all five of these pages. Uh, They do have a lot of links and such in there, but I'm going to give you the highlights of what Uh, the restaurants are expected to do and what it's recommended that they do. So this way, when you go into a restaurant uh, after it all, uh, uh, they start reopening on Friday or Saturday uh, this weekend, this Memorial Day weekend, you'll be able to know who's in violation of the phase two Shio. And uh, that's a stay home executive order. So you'll, you'll know who's in violation of the various rules. So you can be a Gruber, too, if you'd like to engage in Gruberism, named after Rolf Gruber, the uh, the little brown shirt Nazi from Sound of Music who blew the whistle and ratted out the family at the Abbey at the end of the movie. He was also the boyfriend at the beginning, but then he gave up, you know, the love of uh, Liesel for the love of Hitler. Uh, and anyway, so uh, you could be a Gruber too, so you'll know the guidelines, because you can't really rat people out for violating the rules if you yourself don't know the rules. I mean, yes, a lot of people are making these types of phone calls and Grubering their neighbors, even when they don't know the rules themselves. But still, it's better if you know the rules, so this way you know who's in violation of the rules. It gives you more authority, you know? It just It makes you sound uh, more authoritative when you call up uh, the non-emergency lines to report your neighbors uh, for standing four, Peter, uh, four feet apart rather than six feet apart. Um, also, we've got a warning from one of the architects of one of those COVID-19 models who says North Carolina is still opening prematurely. We may be like almost dead last in America as far as states reopening, but it's still too fast for one of the COVID-19 modelers. Uh, And so we'll get to that uh, as well. This weekend, 
it looks like we are going to be open uh, to some degree. A lot of retailers are going to be open. Mattress Man stores going to be open as well. It's Memorial Day, and uh, they've got their big Memorial Day sale. This is a big sale they're doing. Um, they do every year. They do a lot of uh, different discounts um, uh, for various uh, mattresses. For example, the Biltmore line the rest, uh, by Restonic. This is like a fantastic bed. Uh, and you can get a free box spring when you buy one of the Biltmore mattresses which is a great deal. Uh, You can also get a free adjustable base with the purchase of select mattresses. You can go to their website, mattressmanstores.com, get more details. There are some restrictions that apply, so you want to see the store for details as well. So you can call them or visit the store, go to their website. You can chat with uh, one of their uh, representatives online. Uh, Also, if you are worried about the financing options, they got 24 months with 0% financing. They call it sleep now, pay later, which... I mean, I like, how can you go wrong with that arrangement? <laughs> I get to sleep now and I don't pay until later. That's fantastic. Um, by the way, also, they're doing a, have you ever heard of hybrid mattresses? They've got different layers, different, uh, yeah, different layers of materials. These are hybrids of memory foam and inner spring and stuff. They got a huge blowout sale going on as well. Go to mattressmanstores.com for the big, uh, the details on the big Memorial Day sale. Uh, it's going on. Uh, all this weekend, uh, Mattress Man, they've got the inner spring mattresses, pillow top, natural latex, memory foam, adjustable bases, and they're locally owned and operated. All right. Uh, five-star delivery service, 120-day comfort guarantee. Uh, let the sleep consultants help you find the right bed for you. Experience the difference. It's at Mattress Man, mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. There's a fellow named Doyle Parrish. He is the CEO of Raleigh-based Summit Hospitality Group. And he wrote a letter to Governor Roy Cooper the other day. And uh, his hotel or his hospitality group operates 18 hotels in the state. They employ 700 people, at least they did, before uh, the whole state got shut down. And he is a member of the UNC Board of Governors. He's also the past chairman of the North Carolina Travel and Tourism Coalition. And as I said, he wrote a letter, an open letter to the governor, and it was published in Business NC, businessnc.com. And uh, he's, he expressed, this was about a week ago, he said that businesses cannot continue to operate with the current COVID-19 regulatory uncertainty that we find ourselves in. By the way, I saw somebody note, noted this on Twitter today. Um, have you noticed how the science? Oh, it's Brent Woodcox, I believe, one of the attorneys for. Uh, he works in the General Assembly for Senator Phil Berger's office. I want to say, um, but he pointed out. Have you noticed how uh, the science always seems to support reopening just at the precise moment when the political pressure becomes too great on Governor Roy Cooper? Have you noticed that? It's science. Right. I mean, that's what's happening. It's just the science uh, that's dictating all of these decisions, which I'm going to expose a bit of the myth on that in a minute. I've got the audio from a few days ago. Dr. Mandy Cohen, the secretary of health and human services, was asked a question about the modeling um, and the one of the modelers who says, oh, we're opening too soon. And her response really sort of gives you the peek behind the curtain. All right. So when they talk about we're using science and data and facts, they keep saying it science and data and facts. So oh, my. Science and data, in fact, so am I. But don't look behind the curtain, right? Don't look behind the curtain because when you look behind the curtain, what you realize is they're actually just looking at the trend lines. And when the trend lines get to be a certain level, then they're like, okay, we think this is good enough. Let's go. 
And then they make decisions. When the political pressure builds to such an extent that they feel the, the need to move, then, then they move. And then they say it's science and data. Okay, so here's what Doyle Parrish wrote. He said, thankfully, your administration's early decisiveness helped North Carolina avoid every model's initial projection of the spread of the virus. Now that we have flattened the curve, we must take immediate action to change the trajectory of our state and protect the financial and personal health of our citizens, especially the lower income workers who have been harmed the most. We should immediately move to safely reopen all businesses. At the very least, employers must have a date certain to get back in business. By the way, this is one of the reasons why uh, the governor's uh, office sort of slow rolled this thing, because they're getting the pressure from the business community that is saying, are we opening on Friday or are we not? These restaurants cannot just like flip the light on and say, okay, two months out of business, let's everybody go back to work. That's not how this works. There are things that need to occur, and what are the guidelines? How Do we need to set up the tables? How many tables? How many chairs at the tables? What kind of uh, hand sanitizing stations? All of this stuff. So that's what the guidelines that were, that came out last night, that's what it was about, right? And I suspected this was going to happen. I was, I was, after hearing Dr. Cohen at the press conference yesterday, uh, the daily briefing, listening to the way she's answering questions, it was pretty clear that they were getting ready to uh, reopen that they're going to modify this year. They're going to move us into phase two on Friday. Um, it was pretty clear that that's where they were headed, but she didn't want to sort of, you know, Bigfoot the governor's uh, announcement, didn't want to steal his limelight. So she was trying to answer it in question or in, in, uh, in a way that, that didn't divulge the fact that the, the decision had already been made because they were working on all of these guidelines, you know, for publication. So they push it out. And this is what they did when we went to phase one as well from uh, from the original lockdown into phase one. They sort of uh, let it be known. You know, they kind of put it out there, leaked it out there that, oh, governor's going to be making an announcement this week. And then the governor makes the announcement on a Wednesday saying on Friday, I'm going to lift the order. And then on Friday lifts the order. And then we see what happens. OK, so. This business guy, this uh, CEO, Doyle Parrish, he's saying we need to know what the date is. We need to, You just need to let people go back to work, let businesses do this. And if you can't say that, then at least give us a date certain. He says the latest data and science no longer supports keeping businesses closed. To the contrary, the facts support reopening. This was not always the case, he says. And we supported closing the state in the beginning when we only knew that cases were multiplying rapidly. Same here. This guy like channels exactly my thoughts on this. I was on board because nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew how it spread. Uh, people were just dying. It was infecting. I mean, like even now you look at the infection rates and the fatality rates. Like if you're over the age of, uh, you know, 55, it's now the fourth leading cause of death in America. So like that's a, that's a huge impact on a society to just turn around and say okay 90 days ago 55 year olds and older um you know you're you know these are the things that would kill you and i have the chart by the way there's a well here hang on a second let me reach over here and grab it there it is the chart so this is done by the foundation for uh foundation for research of uh economic opportunity uh free up and i've interviewed uh, greg 
Garvin, I believe is his name, Gervin. We interviewed him about that. They rolled out a plan for reopening uh, like two months ago or a month ago. And I had him on the show. We talked about it. He's working with uh, this free up organization. Uh, and uh, Avik Roy is uh, uh, sort of the he's the, the leader of this um, of this organization and the work that they're doing on rolling out the plans and stuff. And they actually crunched all the numbers and they broke it down by age group. And they have your ranks now. So, and I've got this at the Pete page uh, at uh, the Patreon account as well. So you can get, get there via Patreon or the Um So you've got the 10 leading causes of death. And in America, no, 90 days ago in America, uh, if you were 55 to 64 years old, number one would be a malignant neoplasm, which is, I guess, that's uh, like a tumor, right? A tumor. Uh, then number two is heart disease. Number three, unintentional injury. Number four, chronic low, uh, lower respiratory disease. Then diabetes and liver disease, uh, cerebrovascular, then suicide, then sepsis, then nephritis. Okay, so those are the top 10. Well, fast forward three months and COVID is now number four. COVID comes in at about 18,000 deaths between the ages of 55, 64. This is in America. And th that puts it number four. And it's, it soon could actually become number three. I doubt it will get past because like n malignant neoplasms, that's number one at like 116,000 deaths. And then number two is heart disease at 78,000. And then you got to, you know, basically cut that in into a quarter and you're down at like 21,000, 22,000 unintentional injury and COVID is at 18,000. So it's a big jump. So it'll probably land somewhere between third and fourth leading killer in the age group, you know, 55 to 64. Now what happens in 65 plus it's already the fifth leading cause at 120,000. Um, that's 65 years and older and 120,000. It's about to overtake cerebrovascular. It could very well overtake the next one in the line, chronic lower respiratory disease at 131. Um, but still, heart disease and neoplasms are um, one and two. And by like a lot, half a million each. So uh, all of a sudden, you've got this virus that is in the top three or four leading causes of death for people over the age of 55. That has a huge impact on society. And when it was ripping through all of these populations and we saw what was happening in New York, you saw what was happening in China, you saw what was happening, well, I guess we didn't see all that was happening in China, but uh, we saw uh, what was happening in Italy, and that was scary. You don't know what it is. It's a brand new virus, and it's ripping through populations, killing people, overwhelming systems, so flatten the curve, yes. And I said from the very beginning, the whole point of flattening the curve is to allow the hospital systems to sort of regulate the intake so it's not overwhelmed and they can provide services and more people don't needlessly die. It was never to prevent all deaths. That was never going to happen. People are going to die from COVID-19. I may be one of them. I, my parents, my loved ones, my coworkers. Well, I don't have any coworkers anymore. Um, but people I know, friends, family, they may be uh, among the people who die. Right? This does affect me as well. Um, but that was never one of the options. Flattening the curve was never about curing COVID-19. It does give us some room. right? It does give us some space so doctors can figure out good treatments, and that has occurred. Um, Jim Garrity at National Review had a, uh, had a good piece outlining you know, some of the positives, some of the benefits that we, you know, we've learned things about COVID-19 in the shutdown phase here which is that there are benefits to that. We can now, anyway, I'll get to that in a bit, but uh, let me get back to Doyle Parrish's 
this was in Business NC. This was his open letter to the governor. He says, it is now clear, though, that North Carolina does not have a uniform problem. Instead, we have a terrible epidemic in congregate living facilities and a dangerous disease affecting the elderly. According to the state health department, the tiny percentage of North Carolinians in care facilities seem to account for over 60% of the COVID deaths. Meanwhile, the elderly outside of nursing homes are also at risk with 86% of all deaths among those 65 and older. So this means that everybody else accounts for less than 14% of all deaths. Okay. So anybody who's not, so if you are, if you're elderly outside of a nursing home, or if you are a resident of a nursing home, uh, you account for more than eight out of 10 uh, of the deaths. And so he says, to put this in context, among the 9 million North Carolinians under the age of 65, 80 of them have died. During the same 10 weeks, more than three times that many died in auto accidents. This is tragic, but it does not compare to the tragedy unfolding for the unemployed in our state. There was a, there's a reporter at WBT Radio down in Charlotte. Uh, Brett Jensen is his name, and he says, uh, he posted up on Twitter, according to new North Carolina data, that 69% of all of the known deaths in North Carolina uh, are people that were from congregate living centers, 69%. So that is 439 people out of the 635. North Carolina is missing data on 56 deaths. So that means 196 people in the general population of at least 10 million have died. So, right, 69% of all deaths occurred in congregate living facilities. By the way, this lines up with the data from Buncombe County as well, which we went over yesterday. Two-thirds of all the deaths in, in Western North Carolina, uh, I should say Western North Carolina, not just Buncombe County, but Western North Carolina's numbers, two-thirds are in these nursing homes, congregate living facilities. Dan Bishop, uh, the 9th District Congressman, Republican, he said that 69% from just uh, 50, uh, sorry, 62 facilities, right? So 69% of all the deaths, 439 deaths are in 62 facilities. He says, we could have established work quarantines of 200 volunteer service personnel per facility, paid them an average of $100,000 for two months with less, co- uh, less cost than the unemployment alone, while preventing two-thirds of the deaths. This is a gross failure of leadership. Think about that. Now, I think, now, all right, so Bishop is able to make this assessment because he's Monday morning quarterbacking as we all are now, right? We all can now look and say, this is what should have occurred because we see now the data. We didn't know what this data was at first. We, we did it. People were making decisions on the fly and some of them were bad decisions. Some of them were good decisions. Um, you know, governor uh, Ron DeSantis down in Florida, good decision. He made uh, to say, Hey, if you have uh, COVID-19, you don't get access to the nursing homes. You're not allowed in. And they did that very early. So they were able to contain it and, and keep it out of a lot of the nursing homes. Uh, unlike New York that said, if you have COVID-19, you have to go to the nursing home. You, the, the homes have to take you out of the hospital. And you can't even ask because it's a stigma. It's you, We don't want to stigmatize people who have it. So you, the, the nursing homes can't even ask if somebody coming out of a hospital has it. And basically... It, it it wiped out thousands of elderly uh, uh, patients in these living facilities, right? So bad decision. 
And it's not to say, and I don't point this out to say, now let's get him and let's attack him and all that. It's to say that when we're going through and assessing good responses and bad responses, we need to figure out the good ones so we employ those. And what Dan Bishop's suggesting here, this idea you could establish work quarantines. And this is, a, I think, a pretty good idea, right? You essentially, you you quarantine, you rope off the, the uh, assisted living center or whatever it is, and anybody who is going in or out, they're effectively quarantined, a work quarantine. You pay people who are going in there to volunteer there or work there, you pay them a lot of money, and it costs less money than having everybody sit on unemployment and drawing the checks uh, and the trillions of dollars in bailouts for businesses, right? North Carolina is among the top 10 most visited states in America. Half of these visitors stay in a hotel, motel, or resort. One of every 11 jobs is tourism-related. At least they were pre-COVID. Nearly a quarter million people were employed in the tourism industry in North Carolina. In South Carolina, industry peers have reported going from zero to over 65% occupancy as soon as restrictions got lifted. In Florida, a statewide business collaboration is already working to encourage Floridians to take in-state vacations. Those dollars are reigniting major industries in their respective states by enticing both in-state and out-of-state patrons. And they're doing it safely and sooner than North Carolina. This, again, is Doyle Parrish at Business NC. He says, in contrast, North Carolina is in the conundrum of deeming it safe, for example, for Raleigh consumers to visit department stores and retail stores, but it is unsafe for a four-chair barber shop in Selma to operate even by appointment, only with increased sanitation standards. The North Carolina Chamber released an in-depth plan to aid our state officials and the business community's efforts to safely reopen. Though I am not a member of the organization, he says, I provided feedback on the package and I wholeheartedly and enthusiastically support it. We now have the roadmap. We have data and information to allow businesses to safely provide goods and services to customers. However, North Carolina's current lack of a strategic reopening approach, like those used in Tennessee and Florida and even New York, is costing our state the opportunity to reignite the economy and put people back to work. The types of innovative strategies being used in other states uh, and those proposed to revive our economy did not make it to fruition without constant, healthy conversations with business leaders and employers. These conversations to date have somehow largely eluded your administration. I will ask again, who is advising the governor on these task forces? Who, who is he relying on for this information? We still don't know. And it is amazing to me that he gets away with not telling people who's advising on uh, him on this stuff. Thank God, really, that the the Restaurant and Lodging Association seems to be able to get access to the governor to tell him some stuff uh, because, like, they got handed these uh, these guidelines yesterday. So thank God that he, appar- they, he apparently lets them get through. But I don't know who else is in that task force, who, the, the surge groups and the advisory groups and all these people that he's talking to. He doesn't tell us who he's talking to. I think it's important. I do. I think it's important that people know who he's relying on uh, to give him advice in these uncertain times. Right? The idea here, like when it comes to a strategy, Governor Cooper hasn't articulated the overarching goal or the strategy. Like, why is he making different decisions based on the same information? Right? 
He, he reached different conclusions than other states looking at the same information. How did that happen? And then I hear people say, well, he's relying on the, the advice of the guidelines from the, the White House. This is all Trump's fault. The White House guidelines specifically and repeatedly say states and governors should make their own decisions based on facts on the ground in their states, right? Simply guidelines from the White House, right? So this is Cooper's. And I'm again, I'm not interested in bashing the guy if he makes a bad decision, unless, of course, it's like a Cuomo-like bad decision, right? Because that was a really bad decision up in New York. This show is made possible by Schaefer Smith, scrambling to set up or improve your website. It can be overwhelming. It was for me. Uh, so let my friend Schaefer Smith at Schaefer Smith Design help you out with logos, graphics, photos, and online store. He does search engine optimization, website maintenance, and security for professional services, corporate, small business, and entrepreneurs. Schaefer Smith. Make your site look professional, user-friendly, not just for your customers, but also for you, so you can get in there and do what you need to do with your website, and you can adapt more quickly. SchaeferSmith.com. That's SchaeferSmith.com. Also, the show is made possible by Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. If you are thinking of buying or selling your home, call the only agent that I would call if I were that's Rowena Patton, 333-4483. That's 333-4483. She understands the COVID-19 times here have impacted everybody in different ways, and you may need to sell your home. Uh, but maybe you're thinking you can't even hold an open house right now. Good news, Rowena has offered walking tour videos of her homes since 2007 on every listing, just like the real thing. That means buyers can tour your home without having to leave their home. Start out with a video consult with Rowena at 333-4483, mountainhomehunt.com, and then start packing. And the show is made possible by Old Grouch's Military Surplus. If you're looking to be prepared for disasters and pandemics and such, do you need some advice? If you're looking for real military surplus for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It's an old school traditional store with a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim, he'll hook you up. You can also text him at 565-2497. That's 565-2497. You can make an order, ask about an item, get some advice. By the way, EMS, law enforcement professionals, if you're looking for uh, uniforms, send him a text. Make an appointment at Old Grouch's Military Surplus across the street from the anti-aircraft gun on Main Street, downtown Clyde, and at oldgrouch.com. So the Capital Broadcast Company, CBC, they own WRAL-TV. WRAL-TV is one of the leading influencers in North Carolina politics. It's in Raleigh. It's a TV station. Uh, and uh, WRAL, you know this, right? So CBC owns them. And CBC hired uh, a former uh, uh, comms guy uh, who was a reporter, then turned comms guy for former Democratic governors Mike Easley uh, and Bev Perdue. He worked in both of their administrations, and now he writes the editorials for WRAL, and he never signs his name, and you never know who he is unless you specifically ask, but he speaks as the sort of institutional voice of the CBC. Oh, he also got busted a couple of weeks ago sending a, uh, an email. He sent it actually to the wrong people. He sent it to Senator Phil Berger's staff, I believe, um, but he sent out an email to uh, the owner of, the, uh, of uh, WRAL, I believe it was Jim Goodman. He sent Jim an email trying to direct somebody's attention to a particular story with an angle 
uh, even gave them the, the the framing of the story that they should pursue going after, um, I forget which state senator, uh, who was critical of one of the governor's plans. So this guy's an open partisan, right? His name is Seth Efron, and he's a, he's a partisan. He's a partisan hack. And so uh, CBC hires him to, uh, to spread uh, left-wing narratives via WRAL. And WRAL, they're like, oh, well, we're different over here. We're in the newsroom. Well, I guess you are, unless, like, the hack is sending you know, story ideas through your boss into the newsroom, then I guess it's not really so separate, is it? But he writes these editorials and they're hilarious. Every single, the guy gets paid to do the same editorial every single day, which is why can't the Republicans just shut up and agree with the Democratic Governor Roy Cooper and his magnificent response plans to all of the COVID-19, right? And if it's not COVID-19, it was why can't the Republicans just shut up and go along with Governor Roy Cooper's brilliant plans on everything and every uh, policy, like Medicaid expansion and raising taxes and uh, higher teacher pay and like everything that Governor Cooper wants to do is awesome. And you guys need to shut up and agree with him. That's literally the the premise of like every single editorial this guy writes for WRAL. And here's the latest quote. He's got a fancy corner office on Jones Street in downtown Raleigh. He has a vast staff ready to leap to his every want and need. The government and campaign contributors pay for his living expenses. Reporters are at the ready to record and disseminate his every utterance. He can order millions in state spending. With all these trappings and more, we can understand why State Senator Phil Berger is acting like North Carolina's governor. But he isn't. We have a governor, and it is Roy Cooper. North Carolina needs just one person in charge. Voters made a clear choice, with more than 2.3 million people voting to put Cooper in charge. He is North Carolina's CEO. I would just pause here for one second and point out, I'm not so sure that that choice is as clear as Mr. Uh, CBC unsigned, unnamed editorial writer likes to uh, portray Cooper won by like 10,000 votes out of like four and a half million that were cast, right? Yes, he he got 2.3 million votes, but Pat McCrory got like 2.3 minus 10,000, right? Cooper beat him by like, what was it, 0.01% of the vote. A tiny, tiny fraction. He eked out a victory. Barely. Barely. Think about that. In a time when uh, the tide was turning against all of these Republicans, right? Pat McCrory gets ousted um, after the HB2 stuff, after the toll road stuff, and then he gets thrown out, and um, uh, and it's by 10,000 votes. So I'm not so sure it's really the clear choice. Also, by the way, um, the Council of State races, the statewide races, those are held majority by Republicans, right? So uh, anyway, and, and that's they're, they're supposed to be involved in the governance of the state as well, but I digress. Berger, by contrast, Mr. Efron writes, won election in his four-county gerrymandered Senate district in 2018 to be in charge of nothing but representing the constituents of Rockingham, Caswell, Stokes, and Surrey counties with slightly more than 43,000 votes. Yes, and then he was chosen to be the president pro tem of the state Senate. He was chosen to be the leader. So, right, like that's that's how the representative republic... Okay, I'm not even going to bother with this, but uh, he goes on to say his unyielding efforts to usurp and undermine the efforts of Cooper, particularly in his response to confront the COVID-19 pandemic, are more than intramural bureaucratic distractions. They threaten to slow the state's progress to emerge from the pandemic. 
Can you be any slower than the governor's going on this? I'm not sure that's a a fair or accurate or believable criticism. Seriously. Really, you think it's Berger that's slowing things down here? (laughs) Come on, right? Um, More significantly, he espouses demands that place the lives of North Carolinians at risk, including demands on religious observance that diverge with the guidance of some of the state's largest denominations. Right, so at the same time that Berger is slowing the response and slowing our ability to reopen, he's also putting everybody at risk by allowing them to reopen or advocating that they reopen too. You see, so he's right, exactly. Yeah, he's he is he's harming Cooper's ability to be slow and to be faster. It's quite it really is quite remarkable. Uh the the talents that Senator Berger possesses. In recent days, Berger has taken to issuing press releases telling, demanding that the governor give counties the power to prematurely open restaurants. Prematurely. Who's, who says prematurely? See, there's a, there's a bit of a big assumption right there, right? Who's to say it's premature? It's premature by the governor's standards. It's premature by, like, the modeling uh, guy's standards. But it's not premature, like, when you compare it to, like, 35 other states in America, Right? It's not premature then. He says it's okay to advise religious congregations that it's okay to hold indoor uh, worship services. Once again, this is the conflation of uh, holding indoor church service uh, and holding them unsafely, irresponsibly. This idea that if uh, you advocate for the resumption of indoor worship services, that somehow or another that means you want people, you know, breathing all over each other and uh, standing uh, together in the pews crammed in like uh, sardines. Like, that's just not the case. You can say, let's reopen and uh, let them worship and do it in a responsible and safe manner. Berger's reasoning... Other states, including those neighboring North Carolina, are doing it. It's not the only reason, but again, this guy's a dishonest hack, and so he frames it like that. He says, what is so smart about following the examples of Georgia, where COVID fatalities are 15 per 100,000, or Virginia, where deaths are 10 per 100,000, or South Carolina, where it's 7 per 100,000? I mean, compared to North Carolina's number, you know what North Carolina's number is? Six. Why would we want to be like South Carolina with their seven? We have six. We're so much better. (laughs) Berger, in an effort motivated by partisan political advantage, by agitating his political base, looks to erect impediments and foment dissension to Cooper's plans. Could it be uh, maybe that we disagree with some of Cooper's plans. Maybe there are people that are looking at the data and they're saying, you know what? I would go a different route. You know what? I think that uh, maybe we're being a little too cautious here. You know, I think we can trust restaurants like we trust Walmart, like we trust Target and other big box retailers. If they're able to open up and they're able to conduct business safely, I think these smaller businesses should be able to do so too. We should trust them as well. Just like the judge said um, that it seems like Governor Cooper doesn't put the same amount of faith in these um, houses of worship, these religious organizations, right, to conduct their business uh, in the same way that he puts his trust and faith in uh, the private sector, the secular organizations, to open up safely. I wonder why that is. Anyway, um, Mr. Efron at, the, at WRAL says, now it's not just about winning political advantage, though. It is life and death. Real leaders have plans, not merely slogans, disruptions, and defiance. 
It is past time for Berger to support the governor's plan and make it successful. If not, just get out of the way. A constant refrain from the left is uh, the very uh, uh, thoughtful and uh, analytical examination of the argument that is really summed up quite nicely with uh, the name of this approach, this strategy, which is shut upery. Just shut up. Right? That's essentially his argument. Shut up. This development with the um, interim guidance for restaurants that just came out last night and how it, how it was uh, uh, disseminated, it went first to the, uh, the Restaurant and Lodging Association, then got to the media, and then got to the state lawmakers. And that's indicative of how Governor Cooper has behaved in his handling of this crisis. Right? He does not include the legislature in any of this. We barely know who he has included in his own administration, right? As I mentioned earlier, who's on the task forces? Who's advising him? He doesn't ever say. He just gives you some nebulous answer. If anybody, I think the last person that asked him was uh, from the Carolina Journal, I want to say, and it was probably a month ago, and they asked who was advising him, and he just gave some sort of nebulous answer of, you know, business leaders and some other people in this other, you know, these other industries or whatever. But he never tells you who. Right. And he's darn sure not consulting the legislature. So when the legislature starts taking shots at him. Because they don't know what he's up to. Is that unexpected? Of course not. Right. Governor Cooper has played this the way he wants to play it. He's done his news conferences in a way that um, that that blockades reporters from asking follow ups. The same reporters get called on every single time. I've been watching these press conferences. It's always the same crowd. The same reporters from WRAL, from the News and Observer, from the AP, Charlotte Observer, ABC 11, um, Citizen Times will get a couple, uh, Carolina Public Press will get a couple, WUNC, that's about it. And maybe another one here or there sprinkled in, a News 14 or the Spectrum News folks, they, they'll get one. But you, you don't ever hear questions coming from the North State Journal or the Carolina Journal, NC Policy Watch, right? WBT. I mentioned him earlier, Brett Jensen, the reporter. Uh, he's never gotten to ask a question as far as I know. Uh, and he's been on those calls. He said the last time, one of the the last time the governor hosted, I guess this was Monday. He said he got in and he was told he was first in line, and then he never got to ask a question, which proves that they're screening the calls. They're not screening. I don't know if they're. I don't know if the reporters are being told to uh, divulge what their question is up front in order to get into the queue, right? But they're definitely being asked to uh, to identify themselves. And so the the whoever it is that's screening those calls, they know who the governor wants to take questions from and who he doesn't. And it's obvious he does not want to take questions from WBT radio. I suspect he probably doesn't also want to take questions from Nick Oxner at WBTV. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, but it's obvious that they're screening the calls, right? They're They're tightly managing all of this to cast Cooper in the best light possible because... In my opinion, he's not very good at managing this stuff at these types of crises. Just from experience and watching the way he handled the relief and the recovery efforts uh, after Hurricane Matthew, how many houses have they built down there yet? Is it still one? Are they up to two now? Right, It's been like three or four years since that hurricane ripped through eastern North Carolina. And, uh, you know, to the folks, to the victims down there, um, to their, you know, bad luck, that Cooper won... 
just as uh, the recovery efforts were getting underway, because Pat McCrory was the governor when the hurricane hit. He then launched the recovery efforts. He then loses his reelection. Cooper takes office and everything just falls apart. Meanwhile, in South Carolina, they built like hundreds of homes to the people that got uh, uh, wrecked in that hurricane uh, before North Carolina even finished its first. But we were supposed to believe that that had nothing to do with Cooper's management. Right? The guy, the guy's just not good at managing crises, these types of disasters. He's just not. And some people are and some people aren't. Now, what Cooper is good at is politics. And he's good at being a Democrat. Uh, which really just requires you to have the D next to your name. But as but by being a good Democrat, it means he gets all of the positive coverage, right? He gets the protective shield. He gets the cloak of of protection from the media that won't uh, that you know rip him and assail him every turn uh, of his you know mismanagement. Any example of mismanagement, they just chalk up to oh well, you know, was, uh, you know we're 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 flying by the seat of our pants here. We're learning on the fly, so. It's okay. We forgive him. Now he's, you know, he's doing the best he can. He's sort of the benefit of the doubt that he gets just by simply being a Democrat. Because, you know, it's tough to criticize your own team. Uh, whereas if it's a Republican, then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, why would you be making that kind of a decision? Who, who was involved in that kind of decision? We need to know these answers. Who's on your task force? Who's advising you of these things? Why haven't you required all nursing homes to, uh, to test everybody every single day? Right. Seriously, what we know right now about congregate living facilities, why isn't there more of a plan and a, and a, a, a regime of protocols for the nursing homes? Right. That that sets up, as Dan Bishop was saying, Congressman Bishop was saying, you know, sets up a sort of work quarantine around these facilities. But no, instead, we're going to quarantine all the healthy people, too. All right. So let me get to this. The guidance for the restaurants. Any place where people gather poses a risk for COVID-19 transmission. Um, by the way, that uh, that is true. Anywhere where people gather, there is a risk for the transmission of this virus, just like there is a risk for every virus to be transmitted, right? Any virus that can be transmitted human to human, the chances go up when you put a human with a human, by definition. So, yes, poses a risk. You know, it also um, fights. Right. The chance of, of getting into fights, physical altercations, that increases, too. Did you know that? Yeah, it's true. When you put people together, the chance of uh, of uh, violence, it goes up. Generally speaking, when people are alone, not a lot of risk of violence going on. there. not a lot of risk of theft going on either. But anyway, just felt like I needed to state the obvious right there. By the way, also, the CDC put out an update. You know what this update is? Coronavirus does not spread easily on surfaces. <laughs> Okay. Now it does it does spread. It can spread that way. It uh it has this this guidance uh from the CDC um you know first it found that the virus was on surfaces for hours, I think for cardboard it was like over a day. And uh that uh what it was inferred from that that it, uh th- that that means you can pick up the infection. Right. If they find traces of it on the surface of cardboard or some tables or something, then that means that uh, you can spread the infection that way. Okay. Now, the the recalibration of the CDC's guidance on this, it's not due to any kind of a new study or anything, but just basic epidemiology, which is that respiratory viruses spread person to person through the lung droplets. Right. 
right? Through these uh, this air vapor, you know, this, this this spit coming out of your lungs while you're talking. Okay, um, it can spread via surfaces. Okay, so it's it it can spread via surfaces, which is why they say masks and sanitizer and hand washing is good because. Um, it prevents you from touching something and then going immediately and touching your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. So if you have the face mask on, it's sort of a reminder not to do that. And if you're sanitizing and washing more often, then you get rid of it. So it can spread that way. It's just not spread very easily that way. The main way it spreads is the lung juice droplets. Okay? Back to the guidelines. Social distancing and minimizing exposure. Social distancing is the key, a key tool, sorry, a key tool to uh, decrease the spread. Uh, so they say it means keeping a distance, uh, six feet, you know, two arms lengths, basically, uh, basically, you know, if you stick your arms out and someone else sticks their arms out, um, you know, fingertip to fingertip, but don't actually touch, do not actually touch the fingertips, okay? But that's how far away generally you can be. Uh, you want to stay out of crowded places, do not gather in groups and avoid mass gatherings. Here's what restaurants are required to do. Arrange the tables so everybody is six feet separated. Permit no more than 50% of maximum occupancy as stated in the fire capacity. So when, you know, those signs, no more than 100 people. So if you got no more than 100 people by fire code capacity, then that means you're at 50. Now it's 50. Restaurants may permit up to 12 people per 1,000 feet if there's not a fire code number available. Okay. Um, post signage reminding people about social distancing. Mark six feet of spacing in lines of high traffic areas for customers, uh, like cash registers or any place where customers wait to be seated. Um, and th- so those are the requirements. Here's what's recommended no more than six people at a table, unless they're family from the same household. But you do not need to ask them if they're all in the same family. I guess we're just supposed to. Uh, what, profile people that way? I don't know. Don't use shared tables among multiple parties unless you can space them out. Require patrons to wait outside with markings to ensure six feet apart with floor markings and instructions for social distancing. You want to provide hand sanitizer at the entrance uh, to the restaurant. You want to provide education to employees on how to properly wear, remove, and wash or dispose of the face coverings. You want to install physical barriers like sneeze guards and partitions. Do this at cash registers or other food pickup areas where maintaining physical separation of six feet is difficult. You want to advise all of your servers to stay six feet away from customers uh, to the extent possible and advise all employees to stay six feet away from each other to the extent possible. You want to stagger seating times. These are all recommendations, by the way. Stagger seating times. Have people wait in their cars rather than all bunched up at the front door, you know, have them wait in their cars and then call them. Uh, Staff meetings should be held virtually. You want to reduce the condiments that are on the table, so no more uh, salt and pepper shakers all over the place. Um, You want to uh, continue to provide takeout, curbside pickup, delivery options. Do not use preset table settings. Use rolled in, uh, rolled up utensils instead. Contactless payment options and touchless payment options as much as possible. Okay, so those are all of the recommendations for restaurants uh, when it comes to social distancing. Now, the next category is the masks. It's strongly recommended all employees and customers wear cloth or disposable face coverings. It's encouraged that uh, businesses provide face coverings for employees and customers. And that's it. 
Okay, and that's it. So then the next category is cleaning and hygiene. Restaurants are required to promote frequent use of hand washing and sanitizer for all of their staff. And they are required to perform ongoing and routine environmental cleaning and disinfection of high-touch areas. Doors, doorknobs, rails, uh, stuff like that. Uh, Backs of seats, by the way, right? That's one when you pull the seat out. Um, It's also recommended that restaurants systematically and frequently check and refill hand sanitizer, use disposable menus, or maybe a menu display board, or mobile options, something on your phone, down, you know, hey, pull up the, pull up the uh, menu on your phone. Use single-use and disposable linens when possible. If using disposable linens is not possible, then you've got to sanitize the cloth linens after each customer use. I know, Ruth's crisp, hardest hit, right? Um, what else? Avoid offering any self-serve food or drink options like buffets, salad bars, and drink stands. I don't know what that means for the Firehouse Subs uh, franchisees that have all of the the Coke machines. Love those things where you get to mix and match and blend your own Cokes. I guess those days are over. Gosh, I don't even drink a lot of soda and I love those things. Like I would, it's the only time I would ever drink a soda is if I go to a Firehouse Subs and I see those machines. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta make my own vanilla Coke. Anyway, restaurants are required to also conduct daily symptom screenings of their employees at entrance um, when they arrive uh, and then immediately send anybody who's symptomatic, uh, send anybody home. This is the, uh, the screening, by the way, is the, uh, the interview, the standard interview questionnaire. There's like three or four questions, you know, uh, do you have any muscle aches or pains? Do you have a headache, fever, whatever? You have to post signs at the main entrance requesting that people who have been symptomatic with fever and or cough do not enter. Employees who have symptoms when they arrive at work or become sick during the day should immediately be separated from their uh, from the other employees and customers and sent home. It's recommended. So all of those were requirements. Now, here are the recommendations for uh, the personnel. Um, have a plan. Restaurants need to have a plan for immediately removing employees from work if symptoms develop. It's also recommended that restaurants designate a specific time for people who are at higher risk to access the restaurant without the general population, such as early morning, uh, early bird specials, stuff like that, like designated time for old people, much like grocery stores did. Also recommended restaurants enable employees to self-identify as high risk for a severe disease and reassign work to minimize face-to-face contact and to allow them to maintain a distance of six feet from others or maybe even let them work remotely. Um, And then they have some other stuff. Again, I'm just giving you sort of the highlights here. There's five pages of guidelines. I'm giving you the highlights. Um, Finally, there's a a piece at the end here uh, reminding folks that when you've been shut down for two months and you haven't been running the water, there's a chance there's an increased risk for Legionella. And, you know, unless you want to be like the the ag center and the hot tub display and give, you know, dozens of people Legionnaire's disease, uh, the CDC has all sorts of guidance on how to reopen a building after a prolonged shutdown um, in order to make sure like your water systems and ventilation systems are operating properly so you don't kill people with Legionnaire's disease. Okay, Uh, so there is that. Meanwhile, all of this is just too soon, according to one of the lead 
researchers from the University of Washington, whose team is now predicting about 4,400 deaths in North Carolina from COVID-19 through early August. This is uh, the University of Washington. They did the, uh, was it the IHME model? Um, And uh, yeah, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Uh, They published this last Tuesday. And it sharply increased the statewide number of expected coronavirus deaths, a fourfold rise over projections. Just two days before, the model from the university-based independent research center put the forecast number at about 1,200 through August 4th. But then they started seeing all the reports about how we're going to be opening up. And when they saw that, they were like, oh, well, we need to increase the mobility factor. And when we do that, now it's at 4,400, and you guys are opening way too soon. So WRAL's Travis Fain asked um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services about this very uh, point, that the numbers don't seem to be trending in a way that backs the moves we're making. And um, Mandy Cohen said the following. Any one of these models has its own limitations, and that model in particular, the way they model is based on actions that were taken in Wuhan, China, and the kinds of restrictions that were put in place in China and then were lifted. And and as we look at what we did here in North Carolina in terms of stay-at-home orders versus what was happening in Wuhan, they weren't, weren't equivalent. And what is hard for them in their model, I believe, is understanding as we ease back What does that really do in terms of changing? They have a bit more of an on-off switch for uh, things that would impact viral spread, where we are trying to take a measured approach to easing the restrictions. And so we are still learning about what viral spread will look like here in North Carolina. All right, so let me stop there. I'm running out of time. So a couple of things. First, the uh, the modeler said they actually don't use any of the Chinese data anymore. It's all based on American data. So she was incorrect about that but also what she just acknowledged there is that they're just watching the numbers and they're just kind of pulling the lever to see you know we're going to open this and close that and see what happens and then react accordingly i'm not sure that qualifies as science they are experiments don't get me wrong but i'm not sure that you can say that we're relying on the science when it comes to making that decision you're just gambling you're just guessing just like everybody else's and that's fine i understand we're, we're building the plane while we're flying it, right? All right, that's it for today. That's a wrap for the episode. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast. Give it a thumbs up in the reviews. I appreciate it. Also, consider becoming a patron of the program. Thank you very much for all of the support. We'll talk to you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone. Bye.